passage today is out of Proverbs. We're continuing a series of Proverbs, and the proverb is Proverbs 29:18. I'm going to read two different versions. Uh, the King James version is where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And the New International Version, where where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Now that word translated here as vision or revelation is found 35 times in the Bible. It's found only in the Old Testament. And it is associated primarily with prophets. So you find it in associated with Samuel and Nathan and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel those six times. And Daniel, which is a hugely prophetic book, ten times. Hosea, Obadiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. Anybody really know how to pronounce that right? Habakkuk. The word is kazon, and it means vision, but it's more than seeing. It has to do with prophetic vision. This kind of vision is bigger than simply having a plan, not just creating a plan. We often do visioning in the church, and we should do visioning in the church, but if we aren't careful, we end up with a plan instead of a vision. Human beings make plans, and God makes for a prophetic vision. He provides that for us. So if a church or a movement, which at its core is what the church is, we are a movement in the community and in the world. That's what we're called to be. We don't do church. We don't, it's not an event that we do on Sunday. We come on Sunday, but we come to celebrate what God is doing because it's part of a movement that's going on, not here primarily, but primarily out there in our lives. That's what being the church is. At least what we're supposed to be. But if we're to go where, to the place where God would have us, then there had better be a recognition of something else. And that is simply that a prophetic vision must run through Scripture. Must run through Scripture. Blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction, as our Proverbs tell them, proverb tells us. So a godly vision routes through God. That's pretty simple, right? Godly vision wraps through God. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Wait, go ahead. It's not complicated, but it's also not always easy to figure out because God, uh, God's will, God's perfect will in our life, sometimes it's hard. We wrestle with trying to figure that out. Uh, in fact, here we wrestled with my first two years here. I think it was, or a little over two years, we wrestled with this question of what should our vision be for Gold Springs. I mean, we have a mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, but what's our vision, what should our vision statement here at Gold Springs be? Where is it that Jesus would have us to be? So we started to look at the things that Jesus did, the thing he, things he asked of his disciples, because that's what we are. We are modern-day disciples. And those things come from what are known as the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, primarily. The Great Commandment is out of Matthew chapter 22. These are probably familiar, but always good to go back and go through these periodically. The Great Commandment comes out of Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And we see that in the cross. That's the vertical beam of the cross. 
So when you look at a cross, that reminds us, the vertical being, that we are to be, that we are to love God with all that we are, with all our heart, our mind, our strength, our soul, our very being. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when you look at that cross again, you see a, a horizontal cross being. That reminds me that I am to be in ministry to those in my life broadly. To reach out to those. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. All that Old Testament hangs on love God, love your neighbor. It's powerful. It's why we do things like, uh, we, we have a high uh, importance to things like hospitality. That we, are, that we embrace people and engage with people and that we are... Uh, just a welcoming group that we visit the sick, that we spend time together visiting folks in our community, in our church, that we go and we do that, that we feed the poor. <coughs> Excuse me. Care for those who are in need. We do those things because of love for neighbor and love for God. Now the Great Commission comes out of Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and that's Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that's where preaching comes from, where proclamation, kerygma, that's where that comes from, that we are to be a teaching people, that we are to study it's what word and sacraments meant. We take communion because of what Jesus has told us and taught us to do. That's part of the Great Commission. We want to teach what Jesus has taught us. We want to teach to others. Discipleship, right? It's what we want to be about. It's where our marks of discipleship come from. Weekly worship. Daily prayer. We're in the Word every day, daily Bible study of some kind. We have relationships, spiritual relationships. We have, a men we have a mentor or a discipler, and we are mentoring or discipling somebody else so that we are learning and we are teaching. That's how this works. If we, don't, if we don't do both of those things, then something's missing. So we, so we have to be engaged in those spiritual relationships. We are a generous people. We give of our time, our talents, and our resources. And we serve inside and outside the walls of the church. Those are the, six, those are the six things that we put a high priority on. When we talk about being a disciple here at Bold Springs, that's what we're talking about. Any vision that we have must route through those two passages of Scripture. There's no way to have a prophetic vision that doesn't include the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. We are to love God, love our neighbors, be receptive to anyone who chooses to come, to come and be with us. And that anyone is anyone. Without reservation, all can come. We want, to be, want them to be here. Now here's the thing. I've yet to be in a church that's willing to do that. And we're not willing to do that here. Please know that. We're not. It's okay. We're people. Some people we don't like. Some people we, we don't want here. You know? That's... Truth. I don't get an amen. Amen for that. <laughs> you see, it's a radical position to say that we will allow all sinners 
to come, no matter what their sin is, into the church. It's radical. It's easy to say, yeah, we're going to welcome everybody, but it's hard to do, and I have never been in a place that would do it. It's never happened. I don't know that it's possible for us as human beings. I hope it is. See, each of us has our own prejudices and biases. I have mine and you have yours. There are people that, that you know, I, can, I would like to say that I would be glad that they came, but would I be? Would I be? Do I accept those who I think are living wrongly? Even though I, I know that each of us has our own struggles with sin, intentional, but all of us have intentional sin in our life and we have unintentional. All of us have sin in our life. Every one of us. Intentional and unintentional. And I know that. But would I accept others? Would I extend the grace that's been given to me to everyone? I don't know. That's hard. But that difficulty that I have does not change the commandment. It doesn't change it at all. The commandment remains. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the commandment. That's the bar. It's just hard to get there. But it doesn't end there, right? Because we're also to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them in the things that Jesus taught. The irony of churches and people, those of us who struggle to accept people where they are, is that it means that the very opportunity that we want to have to impact another person's life, we will never have because we won't let them be here or we won't let them stay here. So I want to influence somebody's life, but I don't let them become a part of my life. Therefore, the thing that I want, I can't have. A prophetic vision is going to challenge each of us to challenge ourselves. A prophetic vision from God is not going to let me be comfortable in, in what I think I know and who I think I am and what I think is okay. It's going to constantly be pushing me to go, okay, what's the next step? Where is it that Jesus would have me to be? Where is it that Jesus wants me? Am I going to be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, one with Christ, one with each other, one in ministry with all the world as we hear in our communion liturgy? Am I willing to do that? Max Lucado tells it like this. He says, God has enlisted us in his navy and he placed us on his ship. The boat has one purpose, to carry others safely to the shore. Now this is no cruise ship, it's a battleship. We aren't called to a life of leisure, we're called to a life of service. Each of us has a different task. Some concerned with those who are drowning or snatching people from the water. Others are occupied with the enemy, so they man the cannons of prayer and worship. Still others devote themselves to the crew, feeding and training the crew members. Though different, we are the same. Each can tell of a personal encounter with the captain. For each has received a personal call. 
He found us among the shanties of the seaport and invited us to follow him. Our faith was born at the sight of his fondness, and so we went. We each followed him across the gangplank onto the same boat. There's one captain and one destination. Though the battle is fierce, the boat is safe, for our captain is God. The ship will not sink. For that, there is no concern. There is concern, however, regarding the disharmony of the crew. When we first boarded, we assumed the crew was going to be made up of other people like us. But as we wandered these decks, we've encountered a whole lot of differences. Curious converts with curious appearances. Some wear uniforms whenever seen, sporting styles we've never witnessed. Why do you look that way, Dave? We asked them. Funny, they replied, we were about to ask you that. The variety of dress is not nearly as disturbing as the plethora of opinions. There's a group, for example, who clusters every morning for serious study. Serving the captain is serious business, they explain. No coincidence that they tend to congregate on the stern. There's another regiment deeply devoted to prayer. Not only do they believe in prayer, they believe in the prayer by kneeling. For that reason, you always know where to locate them. They're on the bow of the ship. And then there are a few who staunchly believe red wine, real wine should be used in the Lord's Supper. You'll find them on the port side. <laughs> Still another group has positioned themselves near the engine. They spend hours examining the nuts and the bolts of the boat. They've been known to go below deck and not come up for days. They're occasionally criticized by those who linger on the top deck, feeling the wind in their hair and the sun on their face. It's not what you learn, those topside argue, it's what you feel that matters. And oh, how we tend to cluster. Some think once you're on the boat, you can't get off. Others say you'd be foolish to go overboard, but the choice is yours. Some believe you volunteer for service. Others believe you were destined for the service for service before the ship was built. Some predict a storm of great tribulation will strike before we dock. Others say it won't hit until we're safely ashore. There are those who speak to the captain in personal language, and there are those who think such languages are extinct. There are those who think the officers should wear robes. There are those who think there should be no officers at all, and there are those who think we are all officers and should all wear robes. And oh, how we tend to cluster. And then there's the issue of the weekly meeting at which the captain is thanked and his words are read. All agree on its importance, but few agree on its nature. Some want it loud, others want it quiet. Some want ritual, others spontaneity. Some want to celebrate so they can meditate. Others me meditate so they can celebrate. Some want a meeting for those who've gone overboard. Others want to reach those overboard, but not by going overboard and neglecting those on board. And oh, how we can the consequence is a rocky boat. There's trouble on deck. Fights have broken out. Sailors have refused to speak to each other. There have even been times when one group refused to acknowledge the presence of others on the ship. Most tragically, some adrift at sea have chosen not to board the boat because of the quarreling of the sailors. What do we do? We'd like to ask the captain. How can there be harmony on this ship? We don't have to go far to find that answer. 
On the last night of his life, Jesus prayed a prayer that stands as a citadel for all Christians. I pray for these followers, but I'm also praying for all those who will believe in me because of their teachings. Father, I pray that they can be one. As you are in me and I in you, I pray that they can also be one in us. Then the world will believe that you sent me. That's John 17, 20. How precious are these words. Jesus, knowing the end is near, prays one final time for his followers. Striking, isn't it? They prayed not for their success, their safety, or their happiness. What do you pray for? Oneness, unity. And it wasn't just for his disciples, because as he prayed for them, he also prayed for those who will believe because of their teachings. He prayed for us. In his last prayer, Jesus prayed that you and I would be one. In his last prayer, he prayed that you and I would be one. We're to be united, for we are one body. And that's a common metaphor. I'm going to use a passage out of 1 Corinthians 12. Beginning at verse 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and enter whatever it is, the, the people group that you struggle with. Whatever that group is, we're to be one somehow. I don't even know how. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. I believe in the church we spend a whole lot of too much time trying to figure, try, trying to do this distinction. Well, we're here, they're here, therefore they're not part of us. They're part of the body. Part of the body. The ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of it. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If it were a nose, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while the presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together. God has put the body together, giving the greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. One part suffers, every part suffers with it. One part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Each one of you.
For us here at Bold Springs, it was apparent that if we were to live out being the body of Christ, to follow the teachings that Jesus gave us, those are the things that we wanted to do and want to do. So you see on the front of your bulletins every week, being the hands and feet of Christ by welcoming, teaching, and serving like Jesus. That's who we want to be. It routes through the Great Commandment, the Great Commission. A prophetic vision will allow us to see beyond what we normally would. For many of us, it represents a pretty dramatic change from what we think of when we think of church. It's not a place. It's us. The word for church in the Bible is, is a Greek word called ekklesia. doesn't have anything to do with the building. It has to do with a gathering. In fact, it has to do with a called-out gathering. A set-apart gathering. We are called out. So this being the church is all about being the hands and feet of Christ. It's all about welcoming all persons about teaching others about Jesus and about serving the least and the lost and the most and the found among us. Where there is prophetic vision and obedience to Christ, though, the people flourish. See, I like to take that little passage and kind of look at it a little differently. There's no vision, we perish, but if we have vision, will flourish. Be set free. Yeah.